This morning, we're going to begin a new series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And uh, the subtitle to this series is The Grace of God in Christ in the Life of the Church. And throughout this series, we're going to see that an understanding of God's grace in Christ empowers the church to live Christ-like lives in a broken and sinful world. The book of Ephesians is profound. Most of the great doctrines are found in it. Uh, Professor and Pastor Ian Hamilton calls the book of Ephesians a spiritual Mount Everest that turns us away from ourselves and places the spotlight of God's great salvation on Christ and his perfect work of redemption. And yet the book of Ephesians is also very practical. Uh, It helps us see how to live with unity inside the church. It teaches us about marriage and the family and spiritual warfare. And the book can be divided into two main sections. Chapters 1 to 3, Paul explains these great doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the deep riches of God's grace, what we believe as Christians. The first half of this book is just full of gospel explanation. And then in chapters 4 to 6, it's gospel application. How are we to behave as Christians? Paul calls the, the Ephesian Christians and us to live lives in obedience to Jesus, and to live worthy of the gospel of God's grace. And yet that's how the Bible always presents the Christian life. Before there are exhortations or commands to obey something, God presents who he is and what he has done. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this first chapter of Ephesians. All right, so let's look at Ephesians Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I have a question for you. When was the last time you praised God for the many blessings that you have in Christ? When was the last time you praised God for the many blessings you have in Christ? You see, we often find ourselves stressed and overwhelmed by the challenges of life, completely forgetting what God has already done for us. We forget the blessings that bring comfort, the blessings that bring strength and confidence and that lead to joy. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul unfolds the richness of God's grace in our salvation. And it leads him to worship, to praise God. And it should do the same for all of us. And so I hope that as we consider the many blessings that we have in Christ, that they would outweigh whatever problems and concerns we're facing right now. And that we would be moved to give praise to God. In verses one and two, we have the opening greeting for this letter. In the ancient world, it was normal for the the writer of a letter to introduce themselves and then give a greeting to those that they were writing to. And in verse one, we see that Paul is the author and he is writing to the Christians in Ephesus. And we know that Paul wrote this letter and other letters that we see in the New Testament from a prison cell in Rome in AD 62. So Paul cared so much for the churches that he founded that even while he was in prison, he was concerned about their spiritual welfare and he wrote to them. And and Paul transforms this standard greeting by infusing it with the gospel in the way that he describes himself and his recipients. First, we see that he calls himself an apostle. And this is amazing because earlier on in Paul's life, he was a persecutor and hater of Jesus. An apostle was someone who was chosen and commissioned by Jesus himself for this unique position of founding the church. Later on in chapter two, Paul will say that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles. They had this unique role of establishing the local church. And one of the big reasons that Paul mentions that he's an apostle at the beginning of this letter is to inform the church who is really speaking to them. See, this is not Paul's best advice. This is the word of God brought out by one of his spokesmen. 
And so Paul is reminding the Ephesians and reminding those who read this letter that as you read it, you are hearing from Jesus. And he is speaking to his church. But not only do we see the authority that Paul has being an apostle, we also see the grace of God in his life. The fact that Paul would be called an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is only by the grace of God. And Paul continues that he was an apostle by the will of God. This was God's plan for his life. In Acts chapter 9, Paul, then called Saul, was on his way to Damascus in order to persecute Christians, to kill Christians. And he was stopped and confronted by Jesus himself through a blinding light from heaven. And then he is given this commission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul says of himself in 1 Corinthians that he was unworthy of being an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. But it was the will of God that this persecutor of the church, that this hater of Jesus be brought to faith in Christ and be sent out to speak about Christ to the world. We see the grace of God even in the opening verse of this letter. And then Paul describes his readers. We know that the Ephesian church was made up of Gentiles, Gentiles who were at one time worshipers of false gods. But God had come and graciously saved them. And we see this in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. Paul had this amazing ministry in Ephesus. Many came to Christ as he ministered to them and preached the gospel. He also raised up elders to shepherd and lead the church. And so now, just a few years after his ministry in Ephesus, Paul is writing this letter to the church from a prison cell. And notice what he calls these Gentiles. Saints and those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. What a testimony to the grace of God that sinners can be called saints, that they can be called faithful, not because of anything other than who they are now in Christ. And after this greeting, Paul gives a benediction in verse two. A benediction means a good word. At the end of our service, we give a benediction. And it is God pronouncing his blessing over his people. And that's what we see here. Paul's benediction is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are major themes in the book of Ephesians. And this is how the gospel works, right? Grace comes first, and then we experience peace. Peace with God, peace with each other, and peace in all of our circumstances because of what God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And then after this benediction, Paul launches into a doxology. He begins with 
prays. He praises God for the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Look at verse three. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Some have said that this section should be set to music and sung instead of being preached on because these amazing truths just lead us directly into worship. In fact, in the Greek, this is one long run-on sentence. So all those periods and commas that you see in your Bibles, they weren't actually there when Paul originally wrote this letter. Paul just goes on and on about all these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, and he completely ignores the grammar. And he does this because he's not just listing off things that God deserves praise for. He does this because he's actually praising God as he's writing this. He's praising God for this glorious salvation and he's inviting all of us to do the same. And so when you read this section, do you see the wonders that are in the gospel of Jesus Christ? The blessings that we have in him. Think about this, Paul spent three years with the Ephesians, teaching them day after day the depths and the riches of the gospel. He had poured into the people of this church, he had trained the elders of this church, they knew the gospel. And yet Paul writes this to them. He begins with this. And I think what he's saying is that there's so much more in Jesus than you realize. There is so much more in Jesus than we realize. If you are a Christian, the gospel should never get old. It should never be boring. You need to again and again immerse yourselves in the depths and the riches of the glorious gospel of Jesus. And if you are looking for something different, then there is something deeply wrong because you will never, you will never outgrow your need for the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to save and to sanctify. Ian Hamilton says, the reason our worship services do not always throb with life is not because our liturgies are outdated or our praise lacks the current trends and our surroundings are formal. The reason is more basic and serious. We are not captivated and overwhelmed by the gospel. The reason our worship services sometimes do not throb with life are because we are not captivated and overwhelmed by the gospel. Are you captivated and overwhelmed? by the gospel. 
Because as you understand more and more about how God has secured your salvation, you will be moved to worship just like the Apostle Paul here. Paul is praising God for the gospel, for salvation. And what we see is that every member of the Godhead, the Trinity, is involved. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, each of these persons are involved in the work of salvation. And so I've broken this sermon into three sections. In verses three to six, we will see the blessing of being chosen by the Father. In verses seven to 12, we will see the blessing of being redeemed by the Son. And in verses 13 to 14, we will see the blessing of being sealed by the Spirit. The blessing of being chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. And you will notice that each section ends with something like, to the praise of his glorious grace, or to the praise of his glory. You see those in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. Paul is sharing these amazing blessings of the gospel in order that we would know them and praise God for them. And so the main point, what I hope you see in the text this morning is this. Praise God for the spiritual blessings you have in Christ. Praise God for the spiritual blessings you have in Christ. Paul begins with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in verse six, he says, he has blessed us in the beloved. That word blessed is often used by people inside the church, but also people outside of the church. And often when we use it, we tend to be thinking about temporary circumstantial blessings like having money in our bank account or having good health, maybe having a good hair day or having a good feeling. I'm, I'm feeling blessed today. But when things get difficult and life gets hard, we tend to ask the question, does God actually love me? Am I really blessed? And that's because we tend to read the Bible through the lens of our circumstances. Instead of reading our circumstances through the lens of the Bible. And so if things are going well in our lives, we're blessed. And if things aren't, we question. And what Paul says in this section is that the blessings of God are spiritual. They don't come and go. He tells us that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us, past tense, it's already been done. And these blessings are secured for us in heaven. All these blessings we have are in Christ in union with Jesus. And so if you've been united to Jesus by faith, if you've believed in him, you are in Christ and you have all 
of these blessings. Not just some of them, all of them. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, what we need primarily is not more religious experiences, but to realize what we are and who we are and what God has done in Christ and the way that he has blessed us. As Christians, we often live as if we're spiritually poor, when in reality, we are spiritual billionaires, blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul understands what these Ephesian Christians need. What they need is to be gripped by the wonders of the gospel because this will help them stand for Christ no matter how difficult the circumstances, no matter how difficult the opposition may be. And the first of these blessings that Paul brings up is our election. The doctrine of election is one of the most comforting doctrines in the Bible. God chose us. Think about that. We have been chosen by the Father. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before the ground that we're standing on even existed, before the mountains were even formed, before anything existed, God was and he chose us. Paul also says that in love, he predestined us for adoption. These are amazing truths. And yet these two doctrines, election and predestination, tend to stir up a lot of disagreement in the church. And so it's important for all of us to know that these doctrines are not the invention of the reformers. They're not the invention of the Apostle Paul. Remember, he is speaking as an apostle on behalf of God. And we also see these doctrines even before Paul's letters. In the Old Testament, the people of God, Israel, became God's people because he chose them. Not because they were great and successful and many in number, but God says to Israel, I chose you because of my love. Jesus spoke about election. He tells his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. That is the doctrine of election put very simply. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And Paul writes that God chose a people to become his adopted sons and daughters before the foundation of the world. Some say that God looked into the future and saw those who would choose him, and so then he chose them. But that's not what Paul is saying here. It's the reverse of that. It's that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And so when we respond to him in belief, that's the result of him choosing us. 
And because of this, some say that the doctrine of election doesn't allow for human responsibility. And yet when we look at the Bible, it teaches both human responsibility and God's election. We see that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and yet Jesus says to people, you will not come to me that you may have life. In other words, Jesus holds them responsible for not coming to him. Now, that may be difficult for us to understand. It is. But God being who he is, and we being who we are, finite human beings, there are just going to be some things that we don't fully understand. But we have to trust that they're true because we clearly see them in God's word. Another problem that people have with the doctrine of election is about God's justice. Is it fair? Is it fair for God to choose some and in doing so not choose others? Paul answers this in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 16. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What Paul is saying here is, is that this is not an issue of justice. And so when we come to God and say, I hear you choose and elect a certain group of people, and I think it's, it's not right, it's unfair, it's unjust. Well, then God responds with the question, do you really want justice from me? What we need from God is not justice. It's mercy. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, and the punishment for our sin is death and judgment. And so we should not be asking God for justice. We should be begging God for mercy. And mercy, by definition, is undeserved. So nobody can say because they didn't get it, it's unjust. And God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so if you've truly understood the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin, then the mystery of election is not that God passes over some. The mystery of election is that God would choose any at all. That's the mystery. Because none of us deserve salvation. None of us deserve God's grace. There's nothing in us worthy of being chosen by God. It's all mercy. It's all of grace. And then some people will say, well, if God has chosen people, what's the point of evangelism? Right? If God has chosen the people, why do we go out and evangelize? Why do we send off missionaries? Why are we burdened for our neighbors and the salvation of men and women who don't know Jesus? Well, the answer is very simple. 
God has not only chosen a people, but he's also chosen the means by which he will bring about salvation. And that means is the preaching of the gospel. And so the doctrine of election actually gives us motivation to preach and evangelize. In Acts chapter 18, Paul was discouraged when he was opposed in Corinth and God says to him, do not be afraid, but go on preaching for I have many in this city who are my people. J.C. Ryle wrote, um, preaching is the hand of God by which he reaches out to claim for himself those he has chosen from all eternity. We don't know who is and who isn't elect, and so we must preach the gospel to all. Jesus commands us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, to preach Christ, and God will draw his elect. And friends, there are many blessings and benefits from these doctrines. Salvation is not my doing, it's God's. I am chosen not because of who I am, only because of God's mercy and love. This should humble us. We have security in this doctrine. Our salvation rests upon the eternal choice of God, anchored not in anything in me, but it goes all the way back even before time began. There have been times in my life where I have needed this doctrine. And there's going to be times in your life when you're going to need it as well, where you need the security of God's choice of you no matter what you've done. And notice he also chose us for a purpose. Look at verse 4 that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us that we would be made like his son. And so with the privilege of election comes the responsibility of living according to God's word. God not only desires for, for us to have the forgiveness of our sins, but also to conform us into the image of his son. He planned that you might be holy and blameless, that you would be made like Jesus. And God's predestination is rooted in his love for his people. To adopt us into his family, to make us his children, his sons and daughters, and to give us the privileges of being his children. And so the end goal of these great doctrines is to not make you a fighter. There have been many people who have poorly represented these doctrines. But the fact that God chose us and predestined us should humble us. They should give us confidence and security. And ultimately, they should make us into worshipers. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who chose us and who predestined us for adoption 
as sons to the praise of his glorious grace. We have seen the blessing of being chosen by the Father. And in verses 7 to 12, we see the blessing of being redeemed by the Son. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. (laughs) What a great verse. We have been redeemed. All our sins have been forgiven. All the sins that we've committed in the past, all the sins that we're committing currently, and all the sins that we commit in the future have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus. Jesus went to the cross and died for those who would believe in him. Now, Paul says, in him we have redemption. And so if you are in Christ, if you have believed in him, if you've turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus and now are united to him, you have been redeemed. The word redemption is associated with freedom from slavery. In the Old Testament, God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, which pointed forward to an even greater redemption that took place when Jesus shed his blood on the cross. Because we were slaves to sin, powerless, dead in our sins and trespasses, and yet, because of the redemption that we have through the blood of Jesus, sin's power has been broken, and we have the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. It's all of grace. The Puritan Richard Sibbs once said, there is more grace in Jesus than sin in me. Praise God for that. In him we have redemption and forgiveness through his blood. My question to you this morning is this, are you amazed at the forgiveness of sins? Are you amazed at the forgiveness of sins? Because in Christ, God has blotted out all our sins. In Christ, he has removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. He has hurled our sins into the depths of the sea. We don't have to feel like massive disappointments to God, desperately trying to impress him and win his love because he has chosen us and redeemed us through Christ. May our lives be filled with praise to God for what he has done through Jesus, amen? And Paul continues with another blessing in verse eight, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Making known to us the mystery of his will. God has not left us in the dark. He's opened our minds and our hearts, given us spiritual understanding. Think about this, understanding the blessings that we have in Christ is actually a blessing. 
And then he goes on in verse 9 and 10 to talk about a blessing that will come in the future, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There's so much to unpack there. I'm not, I don't have time to do that. But in the fullness of time, God will unite everything in heaven and on earth in Christ. One day, Jesus is going to come back and sin will be no more. All things will be made new like the song we sang. And all of God's creation will be restored. What a promise. What a promise for us to cling to and praise our God for. Then in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In the fullness of time, we will receive the inheritance that is now ours in Christ. Normally when someone dies, they leave to their their family an inheritance. And there has been a death. Our Lord and Savior has died and has left us an inheritance. Jesus, who is the heir of all things, through his atoning death and his resurrection, has secured for us an inheritance. An inheritance that the Apostle Peter says that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. What we deserve from God is his righteous wrath, not this glorious inheritance. But because of God's grace in Christ, we have an inheritance coming our way. In Jesus, we have redemption and forgiveness an inheritance and the promise that he will unite all things to the praise of his glory. We've seen the blessing of being chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son, and lastly, we see the blessing of being sealed by the Spirit. Look at verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you have trusted in Christ, then in him you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Think about when important legal documents are processed. They are stamped with that official seal to signify the completion of whatever is being done. God has put his seal on us, and that seal is the Spirit. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't believe in Christ. The Spirit sanctifies us and illumines our hearts and minds. The Spirit empowers us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. In our salvation, the Father elects. The Son redeems, and the Spirit seals. And the Spirit is given 
as a guarantee of the inheritance that is coming our way. A guarantee. It cannot be taken away to the praise of his glory. Praise God for the work of salvation through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our triune God is worthy of our praise, church. Amen? Now, in order for us to receive these benefits, these blessings, something has to happen. Because all throughout this section, we read those words, in Christ, in him. Paul says in verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ. He's, he's talking about himself and the Jews who first believed, who had come to believe in Jesus. But in order for us to experience these blessings, you have to hope in Christ. And so my question to you this morning is, are you hoping in Christ? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus? In verse 13, we see that it's necessary to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. Paul writes, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. It's necessary to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. To believe that we have fallen short of the glory of God to believe that we are sinners in need of God's grace and to believe in Jesus who is the Savior who has done everything for us. So do you believe? If not, today you have a wonderful opportunity because today is the day of salvation. God is still extending his grace to those who repent of their sins and believe in his son. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And if you put your hope and your trust in Jesus, all of these blessings will be yours in Christ. And so believe in Jesus. And for those of you who do believe, when we come to a passage like this, most of us understand that we don't praise God like we should. Most of us throughout the week forget that we exist for the glory of God. We forget the blessings and benefits that we have in Jesus. And so it's important as we consider this passage to ask God to help us understand these blessings so that when the hard days come, when our circumstances threaten our joy, we will be able to say, I will praise God for what he has done for me in Jesus. And that's why he's done all this. He's done all of this for his glory and that his people would worship him and glorify him. Our Sunday school class is studying the book of Habakkuk and Habakkuk was writing during a very difficult time in Israel's history. 
And at the very beginning of the book, we read of Habakkuk's complaint to God. The first thing out of Habakkuk's mouth is this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? When are you going to fulfill your promises, Lord? When are you going to right the wrongs? And yet, Habakkuk ends with this in chapter three. I'm spoiling it for you guys, I'm sorry. (laughs) Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I think Paul is teaching the Ephesians and us how to do that. To take joy in the God of our salvation. The Father who elects and predestines. The Son who redeems. And the Spirit who seals and guarantees our inheritance. These amazing spiritual blessings we have in Christ should move our hearts to worship. No matter what you're going through now or what you will go through, we can always turn to passages like this and be reminded of how extremely blessed we are in Christ. Praise God for the spiritual blessings you have in Christ. Let's pray. Our triune God, we do acknowledge that we do fall short in giving you the great glory and praise that you deserve. We thank you that you've blessed us in Christ in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. Please give us spiritual wisdom and understanding. Help us to grow in our knowledge of these amazing spiritual blessings that are ours in Jesus, to know them, to cherish them, and remember them. And may this lead to praising you this week and for the rest of our lives. Do these things for the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.